0: And we're live. Thank you for coming back for another episode. Let's see if I can get the podcast name right this time. I mean, it's only been two years, Doc. But uh, <laughs> hey, are you, hey, are you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans? It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So, without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Miss Rebecca R.H. Snow, introduce herself to our listeners and viewers.
1: Good evening, everybody. And good evening, everybody <laughs> out there in Podcast Landia. Look at your little shiny faces. Look at you. Hi, I see you out there. I love you. Thank you
0: for showing up. All right. And so, Doc, I just realized something as we were listening to her very southern and very friendly, uh, more friendly than us. We've been the Blasters and Blades now almost as long as we were the sci-fi shenanigans, and I still get it wrong. I
2: know, but you are (laughs) brain damaged.
0: This is true. This is true. Who know getting blown up after your help? All right. So the second part of the introduction, dear listener is how we first met them. So I had mentioned to a friend of the show, Declan Finn, that we had a string of cancellations because, you know, summer vacations and fellow authors that are parents, you know, they had to do the whole daycare, parenting, feed the kid thing. Funny how that works. They like to eat, Doc. Imagine that. Uh, And so I I made a comment to him and he's like, oh, I got you covered. Posted one Twitter (laughs) thingy. And the next thing I know, I'm booked through September. So (laughs) thanks for that, Declan. And I know you hadn't heard of her before because you're coming in the prep for this, Doc. So instead, you get to do the very important job. You get to ask her the religion question.
2: Yay! Yay! I have an excuse in that I am rusty. So there's that. So well,
0: DragonCon keeps you busy.
2: It does. And sleepless. Okay. You know, I went to the doctor and she goes, your blood pressure is a little high. And I went, this is the most stressful time of my year. Yes, it's a little high. I can drink it down if you'd you'd like. She goes, no, don't do that either. (laughs) She told me to come back in three months and she'll discuss it again. Anyways, so on to Star
1: Wars, Star Trek or Firefly, if you had to pick. I've never worn the uniform. I love both. I guess that makes me by um, Wars, <laughs> that's by Star, I guess is what it Bi- is. By Wars works great. I like that one. By Wars because I, okay, so here's, this is another horrifying thought for you to think. Uh, I actually watched Star Trek when it first came out. That's <laughs> and so I on TV and I was actually at the time, I was deaf, I couldn't hear. Uh, my parents said, no, I was actually lip reading everything. So Star, trek was scary as freak without <laughs> sense, that blue dude at the end i would like cry and sat, sit behind it, and i still was fascinated i was so fascinated oh my gosh i was so in love with captain kirk and then later i ditched him for spock and he was then spock was my crush and i even i, I worked my way through the entire group even with Chekhov. i was just i was such a you know i just
2: mean, kind of adorable
1: I know, and then nobody else ever says this. i love to check off. And so I worked my way through this whole thing. I I knew about, I I was already a nerd. Uh, When I finally got my hearing, it was really cool because now it was in syndication. And I actually read James Blish's uh, Star Wars novels that he made. I don't think they're that terrible. Some people rag on them, I think they're great. We didn't have all the fanfic stuff. We didn't have it in syndication at one point. So I read those books. My dad came home with a James Blish novel, and I ate it alive because I wanted this. And I, I'm still a little kid, but I loved Star. Uh, Star Trek was my introduction, probably, to science fiction. And then in 1977, I watched Star Wars on the screen, and um, I that was there. That was the first run, and it was a really weird time in American culture because the anti-anti-hero, the guy that everybody just hates, you know, he's like this terrible guy, but he's going to be the hero of the movie. Everything is really dark and brooding and, and the world is going to end and there was all sorts of disaster movies and stuff. And then there's Star Wars. And Star mm-hmm. Wars, I, I wrote about this on my Substack about the the effect of walking in and you're not sure what you're going to see. There is no baseline for what it means to watch Star Wars. It was a space western. And one of the reasons I love say, using the word sci-fi western with my series is because that feeling of what Star Wars was, it was actually in the trailer of Space Western. So my dad's like, yeah, yeah, we'll go. We'll go. All right. So here he is, the, the World War II veteran, and he's like, Oh, you saw this really cool fighting and stuff like that. And and he wasn't sure about it. He saw CPO, you know, C3PO and then R2D2, and he's kind of like, Oh, this is gonna be terrible. It you know by the end. When they go into the alley to start shooting on the Death Star and the guns are swinging around just like one of the big ships, my father jumped up out of his seat and was roaring. Everybody in the entire place was doing the same thing. Everybody suddenly rises up to their feet and they're just shouting because there's this heroic moment that we talk about when we talk about those who serve. Those who know what it means when you get out there and you're doing something and you're trying to save the world and it's gonna mean that somebody's gonna die somewhere. It's not gonna be you today. And Han Solo comes in, let's blow this popsicle. And he gets out of there and my dad turns to me and that's the most joyful I had seen him in 10 years at a movie. And he literally is just howling so great. And I was like, this moment is stuck in my mind forever. They can do whatever they want for the rest of their lives, whatever it is they're calling Star Wars at this point. It doesn't matter to me because they cannot take away what I know is real of what is true about this. And that was that first epic moment when we actually see the hero come to life and the whole cast comes together and this perfect little picture of what it, the hero's journey looks like, everything right there. So I have to say that I cannot choose between the two, call me a Bi Wars person. I can't commit because they both mean so much to me as a person who's had family in the, uh, who has been in the space program Uh, and veterans, people who have fought for this country, to know what it means that both of them, to me, hold that same level of of adulation. And no matter what happens to the franchises, no matter who takes over and who tries to destroy or make it different or whatever, they can't change what it really is. Because that's the epitome of it. The spirit of sacrifice and heroism.
0: Okay. Uh, So, Doc, That's 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 the most detailed answer we've given. So basically, what she's saying is they can't take the sky from her.
1: No, thank you. (laughs) And Firefly is very awesome. Thank you.
0: I couldn't resist.
1: uh, I know. I'm sorry. Firefly is just. I'm almost going to take a guess at
2: which one you like best now, but I'm going to let you answer, or Jared can take a guess. Okay. So, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or The Wheel of Time.
1: Lord of the Rings. The reason why? Because it's original. Uh, everything has its own special uh, looks. So I'm not going to den- denigrate the others. Um, George R.R. Martin has done a fantastic thing, and actually, his long-running series is something I sort of based the my series off of. That ability to have this epic scale and all of these things happening in factions and cool things like that. Uh, I love that scope of it. Uh, Wheel of Time. I haven't really gotten into it as much. I've heard a lot of great stuff about it. I know it's a good thing, but Lord of the Rings, reading it when you're coming through in the 1970s and you're actually reading it it as an original work, and it really had just started to take off at that point. Prior to that, there were people who had read Lord of the Rings and people who had enjoyed it, but it was a very uh, niche group. Literally, to come in in the 70s and you're opening up your books and you're seeing what's available to you and over here is this first edition set of Lord of the Rings. And they had just got the Brother Hildebrandt to do the, the illustrations and here are these absolutely drop-dead gorgeous illustrations just out of this world. Incredible. And I fell in love with this one scene where it shows Galadriel and she's in the garden and everything's showing up but at the same time she's this heroic figure that's not not like you see her on the latest one but she is who she is. She's Galadriel. And I thought, this looks like a book. And I pick it up and it still wasn't yet really that well known. And to read it in its original capacity as an original work, to be that groundbreaking genre uh, that really takes over an entire group of books and makes it something new, it gives birth to that movement. So even though the others have wonderful things about them, they're fantastic works, uh, I've got to give it to Lord of the Rings because That same, I guess now you're going to see where that for me as a reader, everybody has their own special thing as a reader that they love, that they really want to see when they're reading. The underdog's ability to overcome all odds, to fight against everything, even when it seems hopeless, to rise up above it and to fight back and to win, even if it means a cost to themselves, is a running theme in my life. And I love what it does in Lord of the Rings, the fact that there's that and and Tolkien's own um, where it rings true for Tolkien, probably more than any other one, is that he also is a veteran, as you well know. And his experience on the battlefield uh, as an amb- ambulance driver, and I uh, have been a certified EMT in my past too, to know that when I'm hearing him talk, he's somewhere in his mind, it may not be an allegory, he may not have ever wanted to say, oh, I'm going to write a book about myself. But I hear his voice, and I know what he saw. I know some of these things he saw in the trenches in World War I. To know that and to know these are real experiences, I think, really brings these books to life in a way that you really can't do it unless you've had real-world experience with real death-dealing situations. And he had it, and it shows up in his writing.
0: Indeed. He, uh, he has some interesting experiences. If you haven't read his uh, some of the biographies on him, they're, they're well worth your time, dear listener. But yeah. uh, all right, Doc, you ready for the <laughs> next one? I know you're a little uh, rusty, so maybe I gotta poke you a little bit.
2: Uh you poke me and see what happens. Uh, <laughs> JR's missed me. Sarcasm is our love language. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so which one would you say that was your first love? I mean, you love both of these so much. It very very much comes across.
1: Um, okay. Sci-fi or all three or of those? <laughs> So
2: fantasy. Which one's your first love?
1: Both. There is both. no reason for that. Okay, here's the thing. So here's I love it. we have this mindset in American literature now where it has to fit the genre. Lord of the Rings is of course fantasy, but that's because he started the genre. He literally creates this genre and he does it out of whole cloth nearly. I know there are other writers who do have something to do with it, Jules Verne notoriously crosses the line from science fiction into fantasy and he's well earlier you know like almost a century earlier but you have this breaking the mold and so when we say well you have to choose between science fiction or fantasy no they can be both the whole point is what is the difference between science fiction and fantasy is pretty much science fiction has a plausibility factor somewhere in here and it uses things that may be present in our real world here to move forward basically technology is magic and then you have fantasy, where magic is magic. But when we look at both of them, if you've ever watched the uh, Ralph Bakshi's Wizards, uh, have you ever seen that? Mm-hmm. No. You want to. It's, it's, it is like a, the trivia. Oh wait, the movie? Yes, yes, I have seen that. It's really good. Yes. Okay, so I saw that also for the first time when it actually hit the midnight cinema, and it was being shown, and I went and snuck out and saw it. And when he pulls out the gun at the end and says, you know, (laughs) and calls him and shoots him, because there's no reason that they can't exist in the same plane. So science fiction and fantasy, to me, exist in the same plane, the same creativity that gives birth to... uh, And here's where I say, if we look at Star Wars and Star Trek, Star Trek would probably be the science fiction end of it, if you wanted to say on the scale, and then you have Star Wars, which is more of a little bit of the fantasy part that the giant empire and all the things that happen. Um, and so we certainly can say that both of those, they're on that spectrum. But this is all one work that you're talking about, worlds that are created with a particular set of rules. And we sometimes get too married to those rules. So I have a really hard time saying, oh, I only want science fiction or I only want fantasy. Um, I, I love both. I actually like hard science fiction even. And we'll uh, read it if I can understand it. Uh, it depends on who's doing it. Um, and I, because my parents were scientists, and I am not, because I, I thought, okay, when I thought math, I thought 1 plus 1 was 11, you put them together and it makes an 11, you know, it's cool. I was, I was like, they would look at me and cry, because I just couldn't get it. So I wasn't as smart as my people, uh, but I, I grew up in a household where people loved science. So it was practically like doing work, you know, they would come home and they would actually watch Star Trek. And they would talk about whether or not something was plausible. They ended up becoming huge fans of The Next Generation. They watched Deep Space Nine. They kept on watching till Daddy passed away. I mean, literally, uh, it, it, it's one of those things that you, you look at it and you go, this is like talking about work. So this fantasy part of it, when they went to Babylon 5 or something like that, where you started delving delve in the fantasy side of it, Now it was different. It was about, well, maybe this isn't plausible, but I love what's happening. I love what's taking place and the the characters are developed and all these things that happen. So I I know that makes me sound really wishy-washy. I don't ever see a reason why I have to choose to say I'm going to be married to a particular form and it can only take shape in one way because that denies innovation in literature.
0: Okay, that's a very detailed answer, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but I like to put things in little boxes because it just makes me feel better.
1: <laughs> no, that's fine. It's fine. It, they do go in a box, and I like to unpack everything together. and I, I think that's, uh, I just don't want const- to be constrained. I don't want to be constrained. I want to be myself. You know, that, that's what everybody says right before what? they run off with your best friend. The answer is no. Um, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be free. Yeah, you can go be free somewhere else, which, you know, it's like, um, so yeah, I, I, I think that if I had to choose, if I was like, geez, i got to pick one, I would probably pick science fiction. I would say that. I will say, if you had to toss it up, and you're like, man, i got to do this, and if it says fantasy or science fiction, I will turn into the science fiction aisle, but then I'll look on the end cap to see if an elf is there in a space suit, because it would look really cool.
0: So Doc is more of the call everything speculative fiction and anything more than that. She thinks it's contrived and she blames Amazon for it. Uh,
1: thank you. It's fairly accurate. No, thank you, Doc. You're my friend. Now you can be my friend because, yes, it is literally contrived. I'm, I'm literally looking at my book and they're, they're asking me to choose what it is. And I talked. it's 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 a romance along with everything else. And I was talking to my uh, marketer and she actually does some of my editing because <laughs> I'm trying to self-publish. So it's sort of like every man for himself here. And she was like, well, you can't do it as a, as a romance because it has to go by a formula. And I'm like, why? And nobody ever, when did this happen that you can't say this is a romance because it doesn't go by formula. And we've almost gotten to the same place with science fiction and fantasy. And I don't like oh, yeah. that write about this—that literally, that you have to fit in a box or you cannot be published. Which is why I ended up publishing my own.
2: Well, I think that's a that's, lot of what indie pub—really, some of the most amazing books are like that.
0: Yeah. Some of the more niche stuff that isn't quite enough to justify the expense and overhead of trad pub, but when you publish for yourself, your overhead is relatively low. I mean, you're already paying your mortgage or wherever you live, so yeah. you know, <laughs> you're just using the space a little differently.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: All right, Doc. Next question is yours.
1: (laughs) Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, that's sounds (laughs) easy. So
2: we kind of talked about what you love about the speculative fiction genre, but um, how did your love of it transition into you writing in it? We haven't talked about that.
1: Because I had a story, and I wanted to see how it played out. Um, I've always had a really super huge uh, problem with called staring off into space when I was in school, resulting in me getting an F in math at least once. And um, I was just always looking out the window. They said I had ADD. Back then they would have already had me like drugged out and I don't know all sorts of things. But then they didn't do that. They actually would just go like, you gotta watch and you gotta look at us or we're not gonna let you go outside. I once missed recess for an entire year because I would never finish my work on time. What was I doing? I was dreaming up stories. And I um, it would have these elaborate fantasies that would go on for you. Know, I would actually make notes and I would draw little pictures that would go with it. And so I would have like a series of little pictures and I would remember, and I could start the whole daydream at the beginning and then I would work my way through. And this is when I'm like eight or nine years old. And I also would illustrate it at the same time I was doing it. Well, so you get a little bit older and I actually had done a little bit of illustration work at the time and uh, also had, you know, uh, but I grew up, I became a teacher uh, and a preschool teacher because I didn't have to do math that way. Uh, And I, and so I actually, um, Uh, It would illustrate the books that I would make for my kids because I was teaching uh, pre-kindergarten and I had a particular thing that I said, if you can learn a letter, you can learn a sound. Letters are pictures of sounds. Sounds make words. Words can help you read. And so when people realize that a letter is a picture of a sound and you're just learning how to say what the picture says and they can read, well, I would actually illustrate these books making the letter as a picture of a sound and I did all that stuff. And so I would write books for my classroom. But I went on through my life. And of course, now we're talking about, we're going through decades. And, um, I became, uh, started a private detective agency with my husband. Uh, don't know if we can say that on the, so I actually, uh, yeah, I started that, uh, and, uh, worked at that. And then we moved to a small community and well, everybody in it, I don't know if y'all are like urban or you're rural, but, um, in small places, everybody wears a bunch of hats. And I ended up one time having to save my house from burning to the ground because there wasn't a local fire department. So we ended up starting a fire department. And um, it's a volunteer. It's volunteer. It's you know, here I am, I got a kid in Iraq. This is she's in Iraq at the time. And he's also a preacher. so I'm a preacher's wife. Um Oh my goodness. I know. So he's the preacher at the local teeny tiny church. Nobody even gets paid. We just show up, you know, like everybody says, Jesus amen. They got all kinds of cool stuff. You know, I sing, I play the piano. I've got a whole nother channel over there where I just do church. That's all I do. And I do the music and everything. And so I have all these hats I'm wearing. And so I went through all that. I'm very busy. I had my EMT certification. My whole family is firefighters and, and preachers and everything else. And we just try to be there for the community. Which means that a lot of times I don't get my stuff done. So, I don't have a I don't have a really cool house, but on the other hand, I've got lots of beautiful people in my life, and um, so uh, I was doing that was really busy. And you know, sometimes God has a funny way of fixing your life. And so I was pretty happy with the fact that I was a really active person, very much an outdoors type person. I came down with a condition called FMD, and FMD is fibromuscular dysplasia. And what happens is your body actually creates a fiber that wraps around some of the arteries, creating blockages wherever it would like, you know, just like randomly for no reason. And so now I have two kidneys that are blocked and I have uh, another couple of blockages in my body that create it where I actually have this uncontrollable blood pressure spikes and they go way, way up. It'll be like 200 over 160 or something ridiculous. And then it'll be all the way down to like 50 over 31. This made it really hard to fire fight because you really don't want to pass out in the middle of the field this was tough for me because I'm used to being a very busy person and I like doing a lot of different jobs. Suddenly I was put in a position to where I had to watch what I was doing so I wouldn't have a stroke. Um, and I wasn't ready for that. I just was like, what do I do? I'm super bored. There's only so many times you can play, you know, games. And like, and I don't know I play, I was like bullet sponge for the fifth time on fallout and I'm like, you know what? I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I had this, story in my head, like I did when I was a kid, when I was trapped in school and couldn't get out. And, you know, that horrible feeling when you're a kid and you're like, I'm going to die here. I'm going to die here in this chair that, you know, Ms. Tunnel, God bless her soul, you know, is going over long division for my last time. I will not live through this. And so I, I felt that same way. I was literally looking out the window and I started with a story and I was like, I should write this down. And so I did. And um, the first scene just came to me. It literally opened up. Uh, I saw it where it was. And as soon as I wrote the first scene, I knew what the last scene was going to be. And my job was to get my character and his world from the first scene to the last scene. And so I started writing. And what I've ended up with is a Game of Thrones level series uh, the first six books are already written. I wrote them during the pandemic, got them done and p- printed it out in less than a year. And wow. uh, yeah, that's uh, almost, uh, it's actually almost a million words. At that's point. her slowing
0: down, Doc. That was her slowing down to, to take it, it easy. It,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, because I was just, I can't. And, and I also did 125 illustrations for it um, while I was doing this. And so we put all that and they may not be really great. I'm not like, okay, there's some fantastic artists out there. There are some people that are just insanely good. I'm not that. I'm just your average little, you know, it sort of looks like a cross-up between, you know, curious George meets little house in the big woods or whatever, and I did it, you know. But my, my people liked it, so I was like, okay, I'll put it in. it. So I started the series, and um, I'm it's it's exciting enough when you're writing, you literally can't stop. You, you say, I want to find out what these people are going to do, because I put them in a situation, and I'm thinking, there's no way they're going to get out of this. They're going to die! There's no way. No, they figure out a way. They're like MacGyver. They find a stick on the ground. They're like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm like, no, you can't. I end up like 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm still writing. Oh, my gosh, she did it. You know, it's like awesome. It's I get to go on the adventure at the same time they do. It's amazing.
0: That is the, the joyful thing about writing. So
1: So
2: I guess we know she's not a planner, but she is definitely a pantser.
1: Mm-hmm. I do have a and- uh, a arc written, and at the same time I'm like, the arc's like 60,000 words long. <laughs> so so it's, it's just little pieces that I found later. So I didn't plan it to begin with. It's just I just wrote it out and it all flowed. And it'll probably change as I go too.
0: So, dear listener, we just want you to know this is her before she caffeinates. So it, you can just imagine yes. once she caffeinates, that story will be <laughs> done. Like what? token level <laughs> novel? Tomorrow it'll be done. You're good. Thank
1: Ooh, you. Who
0: needs <laughs> sleep, right? No, all right. I'd, so I sleep
1: maybe three hours a night. I noticed the that way. <laughs>
0: so we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast are proudly and enthusiastically a veteran run organization. Organization makes us sound fancy, Doc. It does. Uh, we, we also like uh, people, um, we like to ask people about their own experiences in the military, if any were applicable. And you talked a little bit about that, but I understand, you know, from what you said in the pre show that you had uh, a rather um, close connection with the military. So would you like to elaborate on that a little bit for, for the listeners? Uh,
1: yes, actually. Um... My earliest memories. We, like I said, we're a military family. Uh, we've served. There's always somebody in the family that serves. Uh, that's what we do. And um, very proud. Of, of very much a constitutionalist. I love the Constitution of the United States. There's two two uh, documents that I hold sacred. That's the Bible and the United States Constitution. And to protect against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And my father took the oath very seriously. My grandmother took the oath very seriously in a time when women didn't serve as much. Uh, she was one of the first women in the Air Force, actually uh, became the Army Air Corps, and then she was a Lackland when they changed into the Air Force. And I was very proud when my daughter joined the Air Force uh, because of that connection. And um, just so proud of women in the military, knowing they do the job that they can do. Nobody has to cut standards. Nobody has to do these things. My people have been in the military since 1940. My women have been in the military since the 1940s. Nobody had to cut any standards for my people. And so I'm proud of my women in the military. I'm also proud of my family members, all of them the men who served so proudly, uh, many of them at uh, a huge cost. Uh, My father struggled with PTSD all his life. Uh, My earliest memories of my father are I'm waiting for him to wake up and mother taught us don't go near the bed. Stay over there. And she was the only person who could come near him. Uh, He would wake up and just a cold sweat screaming and he would get a hold of himself and he would finish it. And he would, and when he passed away, the first thing I thought to myself, it'll be the first time that he closes his eyes and he doesn't wake up screaming. And that he's finally in a place where it's safe knowing what the cost is of people that you don't sometimes see the cost. You don't see the the scars, uh, having family members that went through that first, uh, de- deployment in Iraq, uh, in that 2005, when it was so rough and we have several, friends of our family that are veterans are very close and dear to us and we see the cost and what it means to be people think that it's a trope to say freedom isn't free but it's not there's a cost every veteran who's ever served whether it was in a combat zone or not has a cost that they have that they have paid so I can stand here with you today and talk about my book without somebody breaking down my door and shooting me so I need to say thank you for that but I also want to Say that it is a hard road, and uh, family members serve just like veterans do. Uh, it's it's different for us, and sometimes they're not as appreciative. Uh, uh, family members can be tough on on veterans, especially when they say, "Oh, why can't you be here for Christmas? Why can't you be here?" But family members that know, that support you, that love you uh, when you're so actively deployed, uh, are pure gold, and they are worth their weight in gold. But there's also those who support there for you after you get out, the veterans. Uh, those people who who know that it's not over for you till you till you finally go home to Jesus, and that sometimes you need an extra hug or an extra hand, and uh, we want to make sure that everybody has those opportunities to know that there's nothing nothing more beautiful than a person who would lay down his life for his friends, or for a woman who would lay down her life for her friends, and so we just want to say thank you for your service.
0: So, how do you feel like um, that experience your your relationship to the military? affects the way you tell stories. Do you think you ever draw on the people you knew or the stories from your family or just in general when you're writing?
1: Uh, My stories actually, uh, so many times I actually hear my father's voice. My father was an excellent storyteller, a little bitty guy, looked like Viva Zapata. He was like, he was detained at the border at least twice. Um, He was like a little bitty guy, really tough as nails, maybe like weighed 105 pounds soaking wet, got in when he was 15. Uh, he lied, lied, lied about his age. Was there before World? He was there before Pearl Harbor, and he uh, didn't get out until after the Bikini Atoll bomb. Uh, so he saw, the, he saw some crazy things. He had so many stories to tell, and he loved oral storytelling. So he would tell these incredible stories about things that were happening. Now, here's the thing: he, true to a lot of people, and you'll know guys like this. He never told the serious stories. There was a bomb going off or something. He never told that part. He never talked about killing somebody. He never talked about. it. He told the funniest stuff. It was just incredible. And it would always be so evocative. His language was so descriptive. Uh, he was never afraid to, to say what to take what he needed to get actually get the point across. And so he would have these wonderful stories that he would tell. And I was just eating it up. I loved it. And so hearing those stories in his voice about people, he wasn't he never told me about his stuff that he did. He would tell me heroic stories about his friends, the people that he lost. It was his way of making his peace with the ones that he had to leave behind, was to keep them alive through storytelling. And so he did. And he would tell stories about somebody doing something to save someone else, or really, honest to God, this is not a trope, of people who would throw themselves on a on a grenade to save the others in their unit. Or somebody who went and jumped in the water because his friends were in the water and they can't get out. You know what? You're going to die, but at least we die together and no one will be alone. These are real. There's not. This is not a trope, oh, someone made that up because it sounded good and they put it in the propaganda. He was there and I heard him. Those storytelling voices, that love of the real that's in every ordinary human. We think of being heroic as somehow you have to have... Uh, royal blood, or you have to have some special touch come to you. He was just a boy from Texas. He was a kid. Heroism is born out of heartache and struggle. When those things come to you and you get a chance to be who you really are, there's a testing point, and either you will break or you will blossom. Those who break are not to be ashamed. there will come a point of healing and a time to try again. But for those who persevere to the end, there is a prize. And that struggle to overcome is core to the series. The idea that you're not coming from a a place of privilege and you're not necessarily a horribly beaten down victim. Instead, it's you are who you are. You have a story and you have to overcome in order for you to become the hero you're meant to be. Uh, And that's not just for the main character. It's every character in the series has something they are going to have to overcome in fact one of the things that we uh do my family has also worked with and struggled with addiction and recovery and we talk about it honestly in the book we have it as a ministry in my church and we talk about the fact that here we have a main character who has substance abuse issues and is going to overcome But how do you do it? And how do you do it realistically? And nobody really wants to put these in their characters. This struggle to overcome is not just about, oh, I've just got to get to the sword, and I can hold it up, and I'll suddenly be made whole, and I'm going to take over the world. These tropes of a very young person who's able to do all these things who has never known struggle or heartache or had their heart really broken, except for maybe they're an orphan. For some reason, they're all orphans. Um, But uh, we don't tell the stories of a mother who is on her last dollar, and she's fixing to make it somehow. She's going to do it. We don't really tell those stories about a woman in her mid-twenties who's on her, you know, after her divorce. <laughs> Rising up to become the princess. Yay! Uh, and, and But you have to. You have to tell. These are the ordinary people and the people that actually have these stories. They're everywhere. You look around you and you see the greatest stories never told. The reason why is because we don't think we're heroes. We think, until you look at your own mother or your own father and you go, you know, when you hauled me out of the fire that time. When you actually paid my bail, whatever it was that one time they showed up when you're crying, I wanna come on my job and then they come and they show up and you're like, Oh daddy, whatever. When that happens, that's heroism. When we recognize that we can write the stories, it's recognizing that spark of the divine that actually changes the world.
0: Okay, that is a, a lot to take in. Um I am not surprised you were a teacher in your past life. So, all right, Doc, are you ready for your fandom questions? I know these are your favorite, but you're a little bit rusty, so I'm going to poke you with the spoon Aww. again.
1: Oh, my God. I am going to drop you in acid. You, you – ooh, I thought you are doing great, Doc. You just keep going in your I'm so proud of both yeah. of you. You're doing so well, and everyone gets Skittles after class. Yay. She's, like, yeah. the nicest. Can
2: she? Thank so, you. um – But yeah, transitioning into fandom, have you had any cool fan art yet? Or uh, anybody cosplay one of your characters?
1: Uh, Well, uh, this is what's really cool is that actually I started off, I was like, how am I gonna market this thing? And what do I do? I started watching YouTube videos with other people and I ended up getting it. I love, also love comics. And I wasn't allowed to read them. That was the one thing my parents didn't like. They didn't want me reading comics. So I of course snuck away to read them and I'm being a nerd anyway. I I was such a nerd girl. Uh, just to the extreme, and so I naturally had to read, like, love Superman, loved uh, the X-Men, I, the whole animated DC series that, from, you know, Batman all the way through, you know, Man of Steel up through Justice League Unlimited, I loved all that stuff, I watched, I ran home so I could watch it with my daughter, I you know, you gotta watch Batman, she's like, I don't want him. I want jam. shut up, you're watching Batman, and so we would watch it, and Frank Miller and all that stuff. So I ended up looking at some of their stuff, and then they were doing these comic things. Well, they had a thing called Drawn and Quartered. A drawn and Quartered actually was being done by Mike Miller over there on his thing, and Drawn and Quartered also has one that's called the Fan Edition. So I ended up, well, Mike Barron was on, and Mike Barron's another comic that has a great, uh, Graham Nolan, a few of those, and they were on, and I actually came on and I actually did a, a set with them and actually drew a little bit Well, I got invited to go over to Drawn and Quartered Fan Edition. And so I've been a regular on there for the last like year. Uh, every week we get in there, we draw something in two hours and we just put it all together. Well, they said, Hey, let's do your book. And I'm like, Yay. And no, yay. Cause you know, you're scared. Cause like, you know, what if somebody goes, I'm this boy is boring and it sucks. You know, and I'm like, I don't want to have that happen cause I'm really scared. You know, so I thought, OK, we'll do it. The people that showed up, oh my gosh, they're everybody showed up for this thing. Literally. OK, so I had Andrew Fleming from Solarian Sun. Uh, Arisette Hawkins from uh, Zombiful World of Oz, I had Alan Alonzo from Atrocity, City, Aerodimus Flash from Middle-earth Storytime, and that's a Lord of the Rings one. Amy and Melissa Lester, they do Unseen Kingdom games, and they showed up, JD Atomic ta- Comic Otaku, Jen Snowden from Night Owl, pinup up Artist Armoron, Gabriel Guskey, Sheldon Cooper, and One Doom Rabbit. These people all showed up, and I'm like, what do I do? And so I just like stuck a couple of, uh, this my regular art, on and then I did a couple of uh, of um, covers from my cover artist Laura R. Morris and what they did was extraordinary because these are actual real comic artists they don't get paid anything they're they just like showed up for the dance I'm like you think you'd be okay and suddenly everybody showed up and like we want to do your book and I was like holy cow this is not like you know it's not like as I, well, I love it when a four-year-old does something for you you know you stick on the on the on the refrigerator and it looks like you know like garbage or whatever you don't care to the end of time it's gonna stay there these are really good. These make me look like such a rank amateur, and it was oh my gosh, I was blown away. Um, they did some. One of my main villains is a, a very well built and buxom blonde. Uh, well, not blonde, but she's she's bald at this point, but um, she <laughs> she's a mutant. But um, uh, they uh, Armiran did her like a pinup, and she was so drop dead gorgeous that I can't still can't put her on my church page because my church ladies will tell me that she's too buxy. But um, they did the most wonderful thing with it, and it was it, it's literally comic book level art. And because of that, I got excited, and I wanted to do a the, the comic, actually a comic book of the series. And so I'm hoping I'm going to be able to do that, and I'm looking for some artists. And when we get a little bit further down the road with my second series, I'm going to try to see if I can start that with a Kickstarter for the actual uh, weekly um, or episodic series. Uh, update that we'll have for a comic book series in the, in the works.
0: That does answer sound.
1: Answer. <laughs> 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 I don't know what I was talking about now. Like, that's great. I,
0: I, I mean, we, we've, we've been all over the place, but
2: I, uh, so what was it like the first time somebody asked you for your autograph?
1: Uh, it was thrilling. Okay. So I had my book table set up at the book fair and this is a really teeny place. So everybody knows everyone anyway. So it's really hard to go out and go, Hey, I'm just shopping and I meet random people because like, literally my county is as big as most people's towns. It's like it's, it's like 20,000 people in the whole county. So like everybody knows everyone. If you walk out of your house if you sneeze you know like people are gonna know. And so I it'll show up on Facebook. Miss Becky sneezed. You know it's like you know film at 11 you know. And so I, I I, haven't been out as much because I've been sick. And I thought I'm gonna make a booth for my book there So they had it and I went out there and it is just melting hot. Oh my gosh. It was like the sun was beating down and my face was falling off. And it was like just rivers of water everywhere because it was so steamy and hot. And I go swaggering over there and I'm like, I'm going to sit down in my little booth. Oh my goodness, these ladies start coming up. They're like, wait, wait. And I said, wee. And I don't know. Have you ever seen a group of ladies and they make this noise when they get together? I don't know. Maybe for the life they go, wee, like that. And there's like this wee sound that goes with it. And they literally just started running towards me like little geese and a duck. And I was like, what the heck? And they ran towards me and they were holding up my book. And I was so they already had it. She already had it. And she wanted me to sign the entire series for her husband that she had bought it for. Not from, She had not bought it from my book, but she bought it from the Amazon and she ran up to me. She didn't even know I was going to be there. And she brought this thing up and started squealing. And I ended up signing like six books for her and I was so excited and she was like with the fire department from like down the road or something. So I that was like the most <laughs> amazing thing to me that somebody actually knew who I was and wasn't just being nice about it. You know, it's like, Oh, sure. It's Becky. Tell her you buy it. Then we going to shred it. You know, it's like it'll make good fluff for the chicken pen, you know, or something like that. You know, I didn't want to do that. So yes, she was really excited. And so was I. I'm
0: All gonna right. Well, like- we're going to, i don't know how we trump that and the poor person who sponsored this episode I, they're gonna feel like we cheated them but uh yeah it's uh, we're gonna pause while we shamelessly shill for the man sorry katie
3: hey there this is author katie cross i'm coming at you with an offer for a best-selling fantasy audiobook titled flame and it's totally for free here's a little bit more about it dragon servants Sana and isadora spence live deep in leadham wood where persnickety dragons and wars on the borders are the least of their worries. Thanks to years of simmering tension, the Hidden Village is destined to crack, and soon. Sauna's deep love for the giant beast causes her to make an irreversible mistake, while Isadora's disinterest in the dragons leads her to a fateful decision that will change the course of the entire world. Can the sisters prevent everything they know from falling apart? Or do they allow it to break and pave the way for new growth? Join the beloved Sister Witches in Flame, the first book in the Dragon Master trilogy. Just go to www.katiecrossbooks.com forward slash flame dash audiobook to get your free
2: copy today.
0: All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. There goes Katie Uh, taking
2: my money again.
0: Yeah, she's. Well, at least that one you can get for free. We know
2: the first book is free, but that's like the first hit is free. We just know I'm buying it
0: all. She's a good drug dealer. Uh, I mean, bookseller. Uh, So obviously, you know, we've talked about how, you know, We've talked about you as the nerd that you are, and you know everybody loves a good nerd. But now we're here to talk about specifically the book that we got you here. So, um, where did you, Where specifically we're going to talk about Transmutation Texas, which is book one of the da- Watcher of the Dam series. So, where did you get the premise for this universe?
1: It sort of grew itself, and it was really weird. But let's go ahead and let's visit a place in our mind—a place everyone loves to go, and that's called Weird in a House. Okay, so let's go to the weird place. Have you ever heard of the Georgia Guidestones? Yes. Yeah, I live in Georgia. It got blown up recently. Okay. So, so in this case, I knew about the Georgia Guidestones back when they were first put out there because they just showed up one day, like monolithic, like, Ooh, and there's a Caesar. So I've known about it for years, always found the premise very fascinating and a little weird that you have like, Hey, let's make sure we just chop down the world, to like 500,000 souls or whatever. Let's all get ready, you know, and, um, and what would happen? And you would have this sort of a global. Society of people that would all be saving the earth and wouldn't it be great? Well, what if the Georgia Godstones had come true? But what if a corporation was the ones that did it and they totally foobarred everything so bad that nothing could be Could be possibly salvaged from it and yet they would try of course because nobody ever gives up in the corporate world They just keep trying to take over everything And so that is the general premise of the actual world itself, is what if the Georgia Guidestones actually came true and the people who wanted it got everything they wanted? And so we end up with that world, a world that's been virtually depopulated by a very well-meaning company who's planning on saving the earth and instead screws over humanity so totally and completely that there's no way possible to possibly save it unless a miracle happens.
0: All right, that is a a compelling um, premise. So before we dig into the book itself, we're going to take a second and we're going to look at this glorious art. So can you tell us the story behind this image? Uh, Uh, I'm going to switch out. This is the cover, dear listener, and I'm going to switch out to just the art at the top because she was uh nice enough to give us that so you can actually see the image. There you go. Now, this is actually
1: one of the first concepts arts that was done by my uh, cover artist, Laura R. Morris, and um, and who've also, by the way, is my daughter. (laughs) So the whole family's crazy. And um, yes, and she came up with this incredible uh, concept art. And I had already drawn a few sketches, and I was like, this is amazing. This is actually based on a scene in the book. And it's in the second book, actually, believe it or not. I had already written the book at that point, and I had, uh, in Six Gun Shiva, there is a moment where everything, absolutely everything is on fire or burning to the ground. And out of the smoke and the haze and out from under the moon as it cracks through the shifting winds comes the watcher. And of course he's half off as he can be because he's not a half camper and he's fixing to kick some something. And so I had this image of that particular moment and I told her about it and I was like, I want to sort of make this come alive and man it didn't take her three days and <laughs> just like to go oh i've got it done it's fine it, it, it was there and he he's just he's perfect uh he's been a great compelling image of what this character is all about uh this character is a very um dark character he's he's not uh, a typical hero in that respect. In fact, he usually doesn't see himself as an actual hero. He sees himself as in charge of his own things and he, his job is to kill men who need killing. And he loves what he's doing, loves his job, uh, but he also uh, has a deep-seated urge to protect what needs protecting thanks to his own background. And so that compunction to destroy what is dangerous in the world and to protect what he thinks is worth saving is what drives him forward throughout the story and his conflicts that he has in trying to protect what needs to be protecting while killing off what needs to be killed. Uh, and that sort of was captured in this image of just the embers and the, the chaos of war uh, and him coming through this, tr- and, and I say war, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, Old West style shootout actually. And he's coming through out there and he is after somebody in particular, he's going to help someone.
2: That sounds, I love the art. Your daughter did an amazing job. Thank you.
1: She's good. So, uh, they're, they're all, my, every one of them is like, this is the most colorful. I was, I look at it compared to other stuff. There's one thing about it. I can see my books from a half a mile away. They're like, the colors are like, wow. And that's we're, awesome. She actually, no. got, she <laughs> would actually learn this style from, um, we she went downtown to the um Arts Magnet School in Dallas, Texas. And, we had these wonderful out in Little Mexico and the places that were surrounding it in the downtown area, these wonderful Latino uh, murals and things like that. And the art that was down under the the, past, the passages where they had the graffiti art and all this stuff. And so she incorporated these colors and those styles into that. And that really pervades all of her work. And it's just fantastic.
2: So now that we've gushed on your daughter, can we get the
1: 30-second elevator pitch for your book? Well okay, I guess so, I guess I better go ahead and roll on down it. Here we go. In a world gone viral, a hero shall arise. Join the revolution with Watcher of the Damned. The happening wreaked havoc as humanity got a hard reset from a gendercidal virus. And for transmutated survivors like the Watcher, life in post-apocalyptic Texas just got a whole lot bloodier and a whole lot lonelier. In a cyberpunk wild west gone awry, the Watcher was a rebel without a clue under the system. A brutal high-tech construct engineered to serve the enlightened and oppress the damned. But that's all about to change thanks to a cheeky chaos agent named Rose. Now the watcher must lead a revolution to save Rose from the system he helped create, or Rose will die and humanity will die with her.
2: That sounds wow. So
1: Again, we'll yeah. what <laughs>
2: that makes your um... Series unique. I mean, I, I'm definitely picking up on some, but like, what is it that you feel really makes it so
1: standouty?
2: That's not a word. Sorry. <laughs> <It's all right.
1: laughs> standouty is very good, and I like it. Um, it's standouty because it actually believes in a lot of the things we've been told we're not supposed to believe in anymore. Now, I know it sounds tropish, and you can go ahead and blame that on old age or whatever you want. But there is such a thing as freedom and there is such a thing as sacrifice and there are such things as men and women who feel like they have been wrung out by life. They have put themselves out there, they have done everything absolutely they can do and they still feel like they have sometime been crushed down to the bottom of the heap. These are not children who are coming out of their little nest like you do in in, in Fallout 3 where you're literally 19 years old and you fight your way across the wasteland. Um, these are people that have already been through the mill. and They fought so hard that they don't know what to look forward to anymore. They feel hopeless. They feel like there's nothing that can change their way that they're in. There's nothing that can change their life. And from that position of hopelessness, you keep your eyes open. You keep watching one day the miracle comes. You have to have that hope. Otherwise there's a thing called death and it's a spiritual death that happens for us all. But that is the thing I think that's so different about this story is it's not taking it from the blossom of youth and I'm gonna go create myself and it's gonna be great. These are fallen men and women, actually, who have lived their lives, have been crushed by their own circumstances. They feel like nothing is going to change this world. I can't make it another step. And yet the watcher still believes in the words of William B. Travis from the Alamo. I shall never surrender nor retreat, and therefore I call you now in the name of liberty. There's something about never surrendering, even when you feel like you have to. You have to be in a place where you understand what it means to be so tired and so sick of what's going on that you wish you could surrender. And yet you can't because you've got something that's driving you forward. And that's the hope that there will be a chance to be free, whether it's you or someone else. And he struggles with this because he's a prisoner. But he won't be for long. And that's where the story starts. It's not in youth and everything's wonderful or, gee, this world has got a really clear-cut villain and we're just going to fight against it. It's The biggest fight in your life is not against an external villain. It is against the internal despair that comes when you feel like nothing can change your situation. Giving up to that is the ultimate defeat. And I wanted him to be able to fight it.
2: So, which trumps do you think you pull in and views in here what was that (laughs) which tropes do you really feel you pull in it sounds like you're pulling in kind of from a a lot of different directions
1: yeah i think that uh the trope that we have of the dark uh dark hero is probably one of the the most easily recognizable tropes here um i tried to make him different enough that he's not just a one-dimensional character he has feelings he has emotions he's also a functioning sociopath high functioning sociopath like a lot of people who work very well in the military and the corporate world. <laughs> I know. No, you talk to anybody. People who actually say, I'm gonna make my own rules. I'm gonna do what I need to do. I make the rules and other people follow them. Maybe you've heard somebody say that at some point. Um, those See. are the people who actually say, I'm gonna I'm gonna do things this way. They know enough to work with the system to get ahead. But they also know when to break the rules, and they are just sociopathic enough that they actually will go in there thinking they're going to make it. They will do something so incredibly risky that it makes no freaking sense, and they're fixing to lose everything they own. And they still will go for it because they are just sociopathic enough to think that they actually can do it. They really do believe they can get away with it, and because they believe it that hard and they actually have got a little bit of intelligence, they can do it those people work very well in society as long as they have a particular set of rules that they will follow and if they have a certain code of conduct that they will follow and so he is actually a sociopath and we don't have very many heroes that are actually sociopaths we have people that will be only they go they go into a berserk rage and suddenly they you know get overwhelmed by their by their you know powers but then they go back to being a normal sweet guy and oh no I would never do this thing this is a man who loves killing people that need being killed because they have done something wrong or they have threatened somebody he loves or do things that he thinks are absolutely on that spectrum of needing to be wiped out from the face of the earth. And he is willing to do it. He's willing to go out there and do what he thinks he needs to be done in order so that other people may sleep safe at night. And he has some feelings about it, but he knows how to uh, how to mitigate those by heavy doses of dopamine. <laughs> Hugging and squeezing and kissing, and that'll make us all feel better. Yeah, and then we move right on because that's what type A personalities do, and that's also a lot like a firefighter. So I think that that dark hero that actually does have certain sociopathic tendencies and yet is a at a core has the ability to function as a good person, that's a unique uh, situation because we almost exclusively think of sociopathic tendencies, especially in this world where we're very conformist. Everybody needs to get along with society. Everybody needs to do all the things society says we should do, or else you're just a bad person. Or maybe a person who doesn't fit in society actually creates new systems and new ways of doing things. That's how revolutions happen is because sociopaths don't like what society is doing. And so we have here a sociopath, clearly. He's not a super bad one, but he's still a sociopath, and he's going to do things his way. And if it means overturning the government and his land, he'll do it.
0: Okay. That is a unique take on a hero. I don't think we've ever heard that one before, um, but it, I'm intrigued. So what can you tell us about the story itself and your main character? Obviously, you've hinted at it a little bit, but what do you think makes them unique besides the fact that they're a sociopath?
1: Oh, what do you think makes them the, unique besides the fact that he's a sociopath? He's old. For lack of a better word, he's old. Uh, when the happening happened, two things happened. You either, uh, but they call it the happening first looking up in the sky, there was a bright light, brighter than anything they had ever seen. Three days later, people start dying. During this, during this moment, the world goes dark. All tech goes dark, nothing works and they are a very interconnected society. They're all cyber enhanced basically uh, as much as we are now, for that matter. They're a little bit of nanotech and everything, in the fact everybody's always constantly connected to it, actually a worldwide Wi-Fi. And that world dies. They lose their technology companions. They lose the ability to even look at a map. They don't even know how to read a map without it. And they begin to die. All over the world, people die without their tech. They'll die because they either ran into the wrong place or they got sick and died. And there will be a very, very few left who are actually genetically uh, immune to this virus. And women are especially uh, destroyed by it, and they are killed off in even greater numbers. And there are very few women left in the world. Everybody else is mutated. This is a testosterone bomb, basically. They decided to depopulate the earth, but they got it wrong. They screwed it up, and wouldn't you know, they created a bunch of really roided-out, mean son-of-a-guns who've got nothing better to do now because there's no women around to go, hey, would you clean up your mess? So that's basically man cave world all over the world. And these guys are just roided out. They lose all their hair. They break out all over their skin. It's like they have terrible inflammations and they look terrible. Uh, but on the other hand, they're still there. And what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And in this case, like a lot of people, when, and they'll tell you this when you're taking uh, testosterone um, uh, therapy, it'll actually make you live longer. Well, in this case, these guys just won't die now. They're just literally aging at a very slow pace. Uh, they're constantly being sort of renewed by this infusion of testosterone that they're getting through their environment. And they are, um, This now it's been 50 years. So they're living in this undying world. There's no children in this world. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where there literally were no kids and you start to get weirded out by it. Like, where's the kids? It's like everybody here is over 60, you know. You're like, there's no one alive who's not you know white-haired or something like that. This Every is literally- time I visited my grandparents, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> At least they have cookies for you. Um, but not no. my grandparents. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, they, they got a pack of cigarettes. Let's go. My, my
2: grandmother made Emily Gilmore look like
1: a nice lady. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> now this guy is, uh, these people have no children in the world. There's no youth. There's no returning. This is a decaying, dying world. Uh, the people that are there are there for the duration, but if you lose somebody, if they get killed off, there's not some young up and comer coming up behind them. That person's dead and you're not replacing them. Humanity is not replacing itself, and so you have this people group of people hanging on, and this this ability to look back fifty years and see it. That sounds really weird. I wanted to make it uh, realistic. This is you know fifty four years after the happening. During this period, mankind's been desperately trying to rebuild. Actually, to, just to try to make an, any semblance of civilization, and they're having to do it from the ground up because you don't have the tech or the ability. There's most people don't even have books because they relied so heavily on their devices, which were the rings that they had. Uh, so they had to put it all back together again. And so this this different look, they, they're physically, they physically, uh, they're, they're mutants. So they, they're big and strong and buff and they're built, you know, and they're virile. That's not the thing. They're just not fertile. They can't recreate. They can't procreate. There's nobody to procreate with. Uh, so basically you have a bunch of sort of like eternally young dudes running around, but in their minds they're old. Uh, because when you get to a certain point, and this maybe is based partly on mine. we talked about my age, um, and people go, well, you don't, you, at first there are some people that actually get upset because they thought that I was a different age. And then I, you know, tell them I'm 60 years old and I start talking about my life and what I've seen and some of the things that I've done and uh, then they realized, oh, I really am this age. I call it the Gladreal effect. You 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 see a person, and you don't realize Gladreal is like a thousand years old. You don't think of her as being that kind of person. And I wanted that for my characters—that ability that yes, there's things that you look at, and you, you're he the Watcher's you know strong enough he can you know, wrestle a bear and do all kinds of stuff, and and he's not decaying like he would normally in a state of age, but he still has that mindset where he's been through all of these things. And he feels that despair and not being able to change his world and do things different. So he's an older character in his mind, physically. And one of the things we would explore in this is uh, you sometimes you'll feel like you're a lot younger. You look at your hands and you go, dude, where did I get this body? You know, it's like it, it, we all transmutate. We all change. I don't know if you've ever looked in the mirror, especially after you've been through something really traumatic. You look in the mirror, you go, I don't recognize myself. Yes. I don't know who I am. I, and it usually will happen after something really traumatic. We all go through that. I wanted my characters to have already been through that point in their lives where they look in the mirror and they go, I don't know myself anymore. I don't know who you are talking to me right now. I don't know the you in the mirror. And I don't know if I want to know you. And you have to make peace with that person in the mirror. That's the transmutation that occurs for us all. And so the Watcher and everybody in his world has been through that point. Where they've been through horrible, traumatic events that have occurred, that have changed the way they look at things, and it seems like the innocence and all of that beauty has gone out of the world. Even though the surroundings are beautiful, the earth is are healing, and everything's lovely, and the, you know. And then there's also you know monsters, but that's a little different. You know, you you, you win and lose some, you lose some. And uh, we have chupacabras. I love my chupacabras and some other wonderful uh, animals that I made. Um, but they are looking at it. There's a weariness there because they've been through that part of life how do you take yourself to a place where the weariness suddenly drops away and you go, wait, there's hope in my world, and suddenly you come back to life, just like putting water on a plant and suddenly it springs up. And so for them, age is a little different. It's kind of like in um, uh, The Gathering, where you have these ancient beings, but they're still young, they still look young, and they feel young, but at the same time they're very old in their mind. And I sort of wanted that feeling for them.
0: Okay. So you've talked about your main character, but you haven't told us about the bad guy. So who is the bad guy that they have to face in this uh in this book? Well, no spoilers, obviously.
1: Okay. So well the first thing is that the, the biggest one they actually have to face, and the first off one is that they is ignorance. They don't know who it is that has created the situation. They don't know why it is that these things have happened. There isn't a uh, people forget there's there's not a leaflet that falls out of the sky right after the enemy attacks I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody shelled your camp But they usually don't leave a note going hey getting a fix and get shelled, you know And I'm the person who did it and blah, blah blah Instead something just falls out of the sky and you run that actually happened when my daughter was overseas um, And you just go see you later And so Nobody tells you what it is that's actually taking place Well, if there's no one left to tell you what happened you have to make up your mind you have to figure it out the whole story is that uh going forward through your own personal ignorance towards what is the actual villain. Is there really a group of people or some sort of overwhelming global government, or is there something that a corporation that would like to take over the world and maybe they tried and failed? We have to discover this with the characters, but there are people out there that want something different than what is best for the Watcher. There are people who feel like the Watcher owes them his labor and his time, and that he really doesn't matter. And he begs to differ. Uh, There are several... Let me put it this way, because it's really hard to talk about it without spoilers. Uh, Because of that situation of a lack of of knowledge about why the, the world is the way it is, the Watcher spends his first two books discovering the mechanism behind the world and being led into a path of enlightenment by others who are seeking to change the system and so we will start off by saying the system is actually your enemy in this case it's not just one person very rarely do we ever have just one person rise to power and go i'm a villain and then you have to go take out that one villain i don't know if you've ever been to a war but you know they're always like hey there's the villain you take him out there's always like 20 other people right beneath him that are going to go pick it up and they move right in as soon as you get finished with them. Because you're actually not dealing usually with a person, you're dealing with a system of some sort of oppression. And so we have literally what's called the system. And the system has been designed to keep people like the watcher from being the dangerous kind of person that they are. And so that is our first and foremost villain. But there are people within the system that are working to keep their fellow survivors under lock and key by whatever means necessary, whether it's through ignorance or actually on the end of a chain.
0: Okay. That sounds um, compelling. But uh, now we get to ask you the fun question. So as authors, we tend to put our characters through hell, and you created a special kind of hell for yours. So if your characters met you in a back alley after knowing what you did to them as the creator of this universe – how do you see that interaction playing out?
1: Um, actually, wrote a scene like this, so this is really good. Um, I, I had a scene, and uh, one of the one of the main characters, and it, it, they they know it, it's a, it's a tough world. Uh, and he talks to the other character, and he's like, "Why not me? Why am I not?" And he actually asks, "Why am I not the main character?" Why am I not the one that's going to get these things? Why am I not the one that gets the girl, that gets all this stuff? I've been by your side all this time. And you never chose me. You never told me these things. It says, can't you wait to see what the author has planned for you? Can't you wait to see how your story will play out? The things that are written for you, you don't yet know. I imagine that they would confront me directly. I know that my female... Uh, protagonists would be very much actually probably probably more vocal than the watcher. Rose is um the watcher's sociopathic. He's just gonna be he he already he already feels like somebody's gonna try to screw him over. He already expected it. Uh and he's his whole point in life would be to find out why that was chosen for him. And he would probably try to find out before he would <laughs> nuke me into Oblivion. He doesn't like nuking women, so I can get away with something I guess that's the that pass that we all get. But um uh in this case he's not the kind of guy that would hurt women but he would definitely be upset with some of the things that are occurring and ask why this world had to end the way it did. Uh, and I would tell him, keep working your way through. I think you will, you'll end up in a place where you wanna be. But with Rose, she's had some great losses. And she is not a sociopath, so she is going to tell me exactly why it hurts her so bad. Loss, uh, and it's something that we don't talk about very often, uh, Usually in our stories, women have a tendency to be, they're very fertile. They'll, they'll have sex the first time, and they are oh, look at that, a baby, yay, they great, you know. And then the baby's always turns out perfect, there's never any heartache, there's never anything that goes with it. That's always the end of the story. They get married, you have the baby, everything's cool, and it all goes away. What happens when the story doesn't play out the way you wanted it to? What happens when the knight in shining armor really turns out to be a jerk in a, you know, in a trash bag or something like that? And, and what happens when the baby is dead? What happens when all these things go away from us? and so with rose she has some definite questions she wants to know why i put her through this and my answer would be the same wait and see what i have in store for you just wait your story is going to be wonderful if you can just hold on another day and keep fighting
2: well that's probably the most serious deep answer we've ever had to that question Sorry,
1: thank you i don't know if that's great or not that's No, no
2: great. So, we've talked about your characters, we, um, were there any scenes that you didn't put in the book that you think you're going to save for next time?
1: Uh, yeah, well actually, I've, I've already started on the second, there's three arcs, story arcs. There's a Watcher, which is a, uh, Watcher of the Damned, Watcher, which is the first six series. And then there's Watcher of the Damned, Wanderer, which is the second of the six series. And then there is Watcher of the Damned Warlord. Warlord is the third and final series in the arc. And um, I've already started on the second series. And so I've actually done that where I take scenes and I'll write them and I go, wait, this just can't go here yet. It's not where it's supposed to go. I'm going to boot it on down the line. But as I was saying, um, my characters, because I'll start writing and they will just start talking to each other. They'll start arguing about garbage. y'all ever been like with a group of people and you're supposed to be doing something or everybody's going to die and instead one person wants to argue about the exact way that it's supposed to be done and if you're turning it in in triplicate or whatever it is
2: it wasn't death but it definitely uh death could have resulted if they kept it up
1: yes (laughs) so this this one person will be like okay so, literally, they'll be fighting with each other. They actually are sitting there, and there's like a chupacabra on somebody's face. And they're like, grab the stick. No, no, get the stick, because it'll just break, and he's tearing my face up. And they will literally talk through the scene, and I'm like, you know what? This, this conversation isn't really going to be going on. I would let them go on for like three pages, just because they would work out their problem. Then I would cut out the internal dialogue, take it all the way down, and meanwhile it'd be like one, pa- one paragraph. But the dialogue is still there, it's just been moved. Uh, and so they have talked a bunch they have talked about some really deep personal stuff. I hate to throw it out because I mean I mean there was one point where it's literally like Rose was like confessing her love for mayonnaise or something. I don't know and I just let her go on for three pages. I know I'm sorry so, and, and she was and I was like you know I, I can't throw this out but I don't know what to do with it so I'm gonna end up with basically the Cimmerillion except it's like people arguing about who gets to ride in front of the horse or something like that you know but
2: those hmm. a patreon I personally think something's wrong with her. If she loves mayonnaise.
1: Oh no, see, that wasn't that wasn't it. I just because that's the only thing I think of it without saying, without making a spoiler. Oh,
2: well, I'm being silly. I'm
1: so. just fine. I, just, I wasn't going to say what she really said because then you'd know what the book's about.
2: Well, keep your secret, so we just buy the book
1: then. No, okay, well, yeah, she's not your she's not your usual little heroine either. She's very experienced. Uh, she's a very innocent person in some ways. Uh, and she's always done what she thought is the right thing. But let me say it this way. What she has been taught is the right thing is not necessarily the conventional Western way of thinking is the right thing. As a result, what she thinks is the most holy and wonderful church type thing you can do is probably not what you would normally do in church. And so she they, she has a very constructed religion that was actually created to keep them all under their thumb and to make sure that everybody does all the right things that the their overlords want them to do. As a result, uh, she has a very skewed vision of a religion, and she very much is a very, very ardent and religious person. Uh, They just happen to have a very weird set of rules, and she follows them. She's very careful about it. She wants to make sure she's a very good girl. It just so happens that she's a very bad, good girl.
0: I I, I might have known a few of those in my day.
2: (laughs) right. Nobody wants to know about that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> all right so so ask her about her creatures wait that so sounds like a, never mind just
2: that you have some creatures in your universe uh, uh beyond the chupacabra things that you've created which i love that you put the chupacabra in because thank you for fun um so can you tell me a bit about what it is you did to create those creatures did you let nature guide you were they purpose built of i need something that goes oops oops clunk clunk <laughs> and like what how did it come out because you have a very vivid brain
1: oh thank you i appreciate that I'm, I'm glad it still works at this point in my life um so one of the things i, I love texas you might have already figured that out now, we don't have very many things that hey let's do science fiction in texas people always want to be in new york or they want to be in la or something maybe Chicago. nobody ever goes to deep east texas and does anything so i'm like you know what we're gonna have it in texas i know texas i've been here for seven generations my people know it uh, like the back of our hands, we can we can tell you what happened at the Alamo every moment because I had people that fought, that fought and died at the Alamo, uh, and so I this is all about you know I decided that we're gonna that world's already built, and in fact the places in the book are real world places. Uh, we actually I opened up Google Maps and I actually mapped in from point A to point B how long it would take on horseback to ride from here to here, uh, and the same thing happens with the 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 um, the creatures. I looked at Texas folklore, and I have love of folklore, I have a love of different world lores from all over the world, and I looked at the great cultures that have been in Texas, including Aslan, uh, Mexico, uh, you have the European, uh, and so I came up with a, basically a stable of cryptids, and uh, among them, do uh, because it's like spoilers, okay, but I will say this, because you probably, there are illustrations and illustrations I say you, uh, the Feathered Serpent, which is of course the quetzal, which is a sacred beast. And it just so happens that somebody out there really loved to try to create these things because there's a certain mad scientist and she is very, very dedicated to making wonderful creatures. And she just loves it when she makes something absolutely horrifying out of nothing. And one of those is the, the Feathered Serpent, so the uh the Chupacabras, of course, of, te- of Texas fame. And then we also have a few others that are based on almost anything horrible in Texas. I don't know if you've ever been here, but there's a thing called fire ants. Or I should oh, say, oh,
2: we got, them, we got them in South Carolina and Georgia. But Oh, I really? Hey, I'm
1: so sorry. I, uh, well, no, I'm I, nearly as
2: sorry as my brother was. He had really bad reaction.
1: Oh, my gosh. No, they're horrible. Uh, that, yeah, I don't know if you've ever. Uh, so things that are like fire ants. Imagine, if you will, that we do actually have in the, in the series, we have cryptids that have been created from mosquitoes otherwise known as skeeterzoids. Uh, we have uh, a fire ant uh chimera which will show up called revelators uh and we've also got a giant texas horny toad which will show up because horny toads are awesome and they bleed out of their eyes and they squirt blood it's a cool thing you've never seen. yeah so i decided to take all the most terrible things about texas like, i don't know if you've all ever gone out walking in the woods y'all ever gone out walking in the woods oh and there's a Ticks. Have you ever seen seed ticks?
0: Yes, I yeah. have.
1: Okay, there is actually an attack in this book of a mass of seed ticks. It is so horrifying that my people read it and they were like, "I can't read this. I can't read because nobody who has ever actually run run a seed ticks will ever question why they're horrible." Um, so I actually ended up writing that in as a scene. They weren't monsters necessarily; they were just little blood suckers. But I thought, you know what, would be really cool is a blood sucking monster that combines the best of ticks. And leeches, and I said to myself, who wouldn't want that? And so we have <laughs> to show up. A squeech is what is called the squeeches, and they have to run from the squeeches. And them suckers are like four foot long, and they got that little mouth that's like and it comes out and it just sucks on you your blood, and it just throbs and pulses, and it blooms out. It's a great. My husband threw up when he read it. He was like, literally, this is so disgusting. I was, the, I felt like that was just the best thing I'd ever done. I, I got, I was, I got nauseated writing it. It was just horrible. And was like, Boy. so I try to think of the worst things I've ever encountered. Um, and because I've also been an EMT, I've seen some really crazy injuries, um, and dead bodies and whatnot. So we have a lot of horror, body horror. We have a lot of dead bodies in this world. As you might imagine, there's billions of people dead all over the world. And so their bodies are still there. Fifty years later, you're still going to find fields of bone. You're still going to find uh, certain things that are desiccated if you're in the right environment or inside houses. And so we have all these dead bodies. We've got uh, Texas cryptids because somebody got crazy with their you know genetic and, uh, manipulation program. <coughs> Excuse me, which will be made known later. Hang on just a second. <coughs>
0: so, so what she really wants you to know is to buy her books because she needs a <laughs> therapy fund with all these these horrific ideas she's writing about in her universe. So, sorry, or, you know, Cut
1: for just a
0: second. Yep.
1: <coughs> sorry.
2: No, I, I do get it. Cause I was stationed at Fort bliss, Texas, which is in El Paso. So I definitely know what you're talking about in the way of the environment. And, uh, cause El Paso has its own unique special beauty, but, uh, my she God. ain't winning any beauty pageants by most people's standards.
1: Oh no! And there's a thing called brown recluse spiders. You ever met
2: them?
0: Oh, oh I've been bitten by one once or twice.
1: <laughs> they're out at San Angelo Air Base, and they're crazy. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry, I have to wait just a second to catch up here. No, no totally. You're wrong. okay. Oh, you're okay. Be, are we gonna be able to edit that out?
0: Uh, um, I'm good. I can. Yeah, I can edit it. We'll talk offline so we don't have as much to edit. <coughs> um yeah so that's uh those those do sound truly horrific and um it sounds like you're going to give everybody nightmares Oof. come in but uh but that's the best kind <laughs> hush um but that's not the best kind so sorry yeah, I had to shush
2: like, a kid that way he doesn't have to tell his therapist that he's having nightmares again because of the army
0: <laughs> yeah exactly you know nothing a good bottle of bourbon won't fix but uh anyway but um We've talked about all the horrific things you like to write about. Obviously, you know, we've gone in depth about your universe. But uh, since this interview is winding down, is there anything we didn't ask you about Transmutation Texas, which is book one of the Watchers of the Damned series, uh, that we didn't ask that you want to tell us?
1: Uh-oh.
0: Oh, Oh, it helped. I accidentally muted her when she was coughing. I am so sorry. No,
1: you're fine. Uh, The war between the sexes, actually. Um, men and women really are different. I know that's probably gonna get us banned. Goodbye, YouTube. And um uh they do act differently. And we have different expectations. Not everybody's the same, and we all have you know different ways of being male or female. But there is a rom-com element to Watcher the Damn. That's why when I describe it, it's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi western romance. And hey, Dad pulls greatest-
2: a date movie. <laughs> huh? Deadpool's a romance
1: movie. Yeah absolutely and so you have this great story of two people that are meeting each other it doesn't follow the formula at all uh they don't immediately fall in love with each other and in fact there's a lot of banter that goes on there's a lot of back and forth and uh, there are two completely different kinds of people uh rose is a different kind of heroine she's not i usually in in um science fiction for some reason the women that we meet are almost always like seven feet tall and they're as big around as my pinky. I don't know why they all, you know, they're, they're all strong, tough women. And yet they're super hot, sexy. Uh, they don't need any help, but they'll let you help them for fun. You know, uh, they don't have any foibles or flaws or anything like that. Rose definitely has foibles. She is short. She's shorter than me. Now, I'm a, this is, this is one place where I will, I will fully admit to Mary Sue and the freak out of this. Hang on. i got to have to hop again.
0: All right. Um, Sorry about that, dear listener. Sometimes allergy season will get everybody, so I'm just you know muting it while while uh, Texas works its magic on her. But uh, now you know when she wrote this book, it was authentic. So because
2: Texas, we really appreciate you because
0: Texas really is trying to kill her, and we appreciate you bearing with us. Yeah. Um, All right. So I remembered to unmute you this time. Sorry about that. And exactly. uh, you were telling yeah. us about the yes,
1: yeah, so I am Mary Sue the heck out of uh, Rose, and so she is. Um- She's short like me. I'm a shorty. I'm actually only 4'11". Uh, I have to usually climb up to knock somebody in the knees. Uh, and never let me never <laughs> stop. Uh, and so uh, I, I was really just like, you know what? I could try to write this tall, willowy, super, the, the typical female character. I'm like, I can't do that. Um, I was also really super tired of, a, of a, the female character is always so beautiful. Everybody just loves the way she looks. I wanted Rose to be beautiful but I didn't want it to be just like everybody falls in love with bit all the time. Everybody thinks she's just the most wonderful thing. Um, uh, no, she's, she's Rose. She's uh, not the average baby, but she's certainly herself and she is um, her own unique human being. And so in creating her personality for the watcher and saying there's this rom-com, how do you do it? It's usually about opposites almost always. Now a buddy, a buddy movie will have opposites almost always because you want to explore the two different sides of it. And so the, Watcher the Damned as a romance series and as moving outside of the norms of what is usually the genre entails and to still have a actual romance where it is we have so many people that now that don't really want to write a actual romance uh they they are they they make it so overly sensitive to everybody's viewpoints that they can no longer capture the essence of what it means to have a male female romance. As a result, they lose that dynamic of dominance and and, and submission and from both sides, they lose that ability to face off as male and female and you may be big and I may be little, but we're gonna come head to head somewhere and we're gonna figure it out. Even if you don't think I'd be in tough, I actually can be. And the other guys like I may look big and tough, but you could still break my heart, and I'm not going to let you. And that part of coming together and actually allowing the other person into your circle enough to trust them that you will, can open yourself is that intimacy I think that's missing so often in romance. And so that part of it that's beyond sexuality, uh, the sexuality is part of it, but there's something different about it. And I read a lot of things where it has sex in it, where there will be people interacting in a physical way, But there's not that romance that actually sparks off the imagination and i wanted that in the story and i feel like i did a great job with it and that's that's me personally hearing from women and men who have read it i had a very good response from men who read this who loved the romance in this because it didn't diminish the male lead he didn't become a simp or decide that he's going to let her do everything. He does struggle with this because here's this cute little person that she feels like she could probably get away with almost anything. Uh, And he still has to be himself. He still has to do his job. She also is not a person that's just going to roll over for him because she's got a job she wants to do and she wants to go do it. She wants to be a hero in the story. She may not be the most physically capable person, but she has her own role to play. And so these two people coming together and having that response from my readers that they loved it. When I had a romance writer read it and she said it was the most romantic thing she had read in years, I was thrilled because I felt like that's what I wanted to hear. When men can read it, women can read it. And both of them say, this is romantic. I was thrilled because that was the greatest point I wanted out of this book.
0: Okay. So is this available in an audio book as well?
1: Uh, we're actually working on that part we actually have a podcast that i put out per week uh uh uh, on that time frame i have eight episodes already out because being broke i couldn't afford to get an audible (laughs) book done yet and so i went ahead and i just started uh doing it uh that i have a weekly podcast about 30 minutes long and it's usually a chapter from the book so it's actually in serial form it actually is done with um usually i'll have a, a one start and it'll go through to the sort of a little cliffhanger ending and each time we have our own music, we have the, the opening and the closing of it, and we just roll right through it. And um, so we're putting it together, and it actually is available. I've seen it on Audible as a podcast. So I'm assuming that people can click on it from there because it shows up under Audible. I don't know how. But um, uh, so we did include that as the Audible book. We will be actually cobbling that together as soon as I finish the first book of Watcher of the Damned. We'll be releasing that throughout the year. And then as soon as I finish that, we are going to pull it together to make the Audible and so that will probably be available by next year. But the podcast there, way of doing it, yeah. So, I, so we already have the podcast there, and it's available for you now. And it's on my uh, website at WatcherOfTheDams slash podcast.
0: Okay, that sounds uh, that sounds interesting. And what would the age range be for readers of this book?
1: I talked to my uh, marketer, and she said thirteen, PG thirteen. It is. I would be really careful with any children under the in the middle school range. I don't think I would probably share that with them. The themes are very dark. They are graphically described. I I, I am a very um, and we'll go into this this part to talk about it. Uh, one of the things I have on there is I have there is sexual violence in this mo- because this is a real world and women have struggled with sexual violence since the beginning of time. It's not going to be glossed over. I usually don't describe in detail the actual attack, but I do talk about the trauma and the emotional damage that occurs with those things. And so when I talk about somebody after an attack or somebody that's had their leg broken, I talk about it as it actually looks. I don't like to glorify violence. I do like to highlight violence so people will know what it actually is. As a result, this is a very dark book. It deals with dark themes, including addiction, uh, sexuality. Uh, It deals with war and bloodshed. And so I would say definitely PG-13.
0: All right, and uh, this is the point of the interview. Dear listener, why I remind you that uh, you have a part to play in this ecosystem that is the book world. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. And rumor has it when she gets her 100th review, she gets a unicorn. And she's from <laughs> Texas, so she wants to know what a unicorn steak tastes like. It's what they do.
1: This is like Okay.
0: So, uh, all right. So this is the part uh, where we wrap it all up. But before we let you go, uh, Miss Snow, we have to ask you where they can find you on the internet. And as usual, it will be in the show notes.
1: Yay! So if you want to find me on the internet, of course, I'm on Amazon, Kobo, Apple Books, I'm all of them. But let's go to flow.page/rhSnow. You'll see my main links there. Uh, you can also find me at watcherofthedamned.com. That's W-A-T-C-H-E-R-D-A-M-N-E-D. Uh, no, watcherofthedammed.com. And so you can find me there with all my links and, of course, on my flow page. And you can also And if visit- you didn't have a... Go ahead.
0: If you didn't have a pen handy, like we said, scroll down wherever you're reading this. Show notes have all of that information for you to uh, stalk her as you do, you know, enthusiastically follow. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades at gmail.com again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. All the cool kids like to talk to doc over there. So do your part people. She might even send yeah, you say, really- replies. Or pictures okay. of pineapples and pizza and that other criminal heresy. Uh, wait, they you're one of them. The
2: program people obviously Jeez. like it.
0: They're wrong. They're wrong. Uh, you're not they even giving no a pass if you're like Hawaiian. You're all just wrong. Anyway, you I can find us on Facebook. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen. <laughs> facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades you can also support us there for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on or you can support us on a more direct manner, either reoccurring or one time, over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author Jr. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. Oh, that would be fun. All
2: uh,
0: right. I mean, what a way to go, Doc, but bring us home before your <laughs> liver explodes on air.
2: <laughs> so thank you for summing some of your precious time with us. For, for the absent Nick Garber and J.R. Henley, Nick better be working on my comic book already. I'm yeah. um, Doc. I'm what? Yeah. Yay. You have a She's, comic book. No, I just, tell him what him, I just tell him he has to be making me a comic book. I have no <laughs> idea what it would be about. <laughs>
0: so- you, it'd be violence in, in short, people.
2: That's right. I'm <laughs> going to go make you type words and go back to pizza rehab. So I was in Suska. This was a Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next time. Same place, same craziness, same bad j pizza-loving toppings. And and we'll be celebrating nerd culture, pineapple on pizza, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.
0: That heresy will not stand. And if you don't, <laughs> don't like it, send... Send Doc hate mail. All right, I'm going to feed her (laughs) to the punch.